Thank you for listening to this message from Waynesboro Free Methodist Church. Our mission is to multiply faithful followers of Jesus Christ. We hope this message helps you along your journey. This morning we will be reading Psalm 51 from the ESV version. It's entitled, Create in Me a Clean Heart, O God. It's written to the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone to Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned, and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words, and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Wanda. Mm -hmm. Uh, if you guys couldn't tell, this isn't going to be a feel-good Sunday, is it? Uh, it's going to be very deep and probably very personal. So if you have your Bibles, I hope you're already in Psalm 51. Uh, just a quick heads up, I'm trying something new. Uh, I only have a few notes on my iPad for today. Uh, usually I write a full word-for-word -word manuscript. So <laughs> let me pray real quick. <laughs> uh, God, I, I really need your grace. I want your spirit to lead me. And I pray, Father, that you would get me out of the way and that you would uh, be the one who's in charge here and that your word would be used for the people of God to be encouraged, convicted, and transformed. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, guys, back when I was in, uh, well, let me actually start before that. Um, I am an incredibly blessed individual because I grew up in a home where both my father and my mother were present and they were in love with Jesus. Uh, I recognize how rare that is, and I recognize that gives me a certain privilege. So with that, uh, I have an, a, a complete admiration for my father, uh, one of the godliest men that I know. I strive to be like him in many ways. Back when I was in college, uh, I was home on break uh, for a, a weekend, and uh, my mom and dad were telling me of a problem they were having. Uh, my, uh, my parents have this back deck, and my mom... Uh, in in, in remembrance of her own dad, would feed squirrels on the back deck these big walnuts, right? And uh, they loved them. They would come and they'd expect like, like clockwork every day. Where's my meal, woman? So she'd give it. Well, it turns out that these squirrels started just getting really naggy and impatient. And instead of like waiting, 
patiently, they would gnaw on the trim work on my parents' house. They would eat the deck. Like, wood would just be splintered everywhere. It's like, I've never seen, I thought they'd be beavers, but they're, they're squirrels, right? And they're eating the deck. And so, uh, my, uh, I, I, I went to my parents, and I offered a solution to that problem. You see, I owned a 22 caliber rifle at the time uh, that could handle what are called short rounds. They'd be really quiet. Nobody would know. The problem was it was illegal to shoot a firearm uh, apart from self-defense uh, in the city because we lived in the city of Cary. Um, but I, I was trying to finagle my way around that. And so I, I offered this to my parents. My dad said, absolutely not. It's against the law. My mom, on the other hand, said, I won't tell, I won't tell anybody, right? <laughs> well, so I, finding within myself a natural capacity to want to disobey, um, decided that my mom was right. And uh, while my dad was on a conference call in his office, I went up to the upstairs bedroom and opened up the window and uh, lined up and and. and and did the work, <laughs> I'll put it that way, um, and uh, I thought I'd gotten away with it, thought I'd, I'd just, like I made it, right, the, the rounds were quiet and everything, uh, as soon as my dad got off his conference call, he came out, and he said, he said, Scott, did you, did you do what I asked you not to do? I said, yeah, yeah, dad. And, and I, I remember the incredible look of disappointment that he had on his face. And when you, when you have a certain kind of admiration for someone, you do everything you can not to try to disappoint, right? I knew I had radically disappointed my dad. What's funny is he doesn't even remember this happened at all. Right? Like I asked him, I tell him about it later. But that moment was uh, a very powerful moment because I found within myself a deep, deep sorrow and guilt for having done something against my own father that he said was wrong, that I did anyways. And I, and, and, and I did it not because I just simply feared him, right? My dad was not a man of anger. He, he was a man of gentleness. I wasn't afraid of him, but I loved him deeply and I knew that I had broken his heart. And so the reason why I tell you that story is because there's a, a way for us as believers, because you and I both know, like, how many of you don't sin? Just raise your hand if, you've, if you don't sin anymore. Like, you're good. Like, you just don't find any desires in you that are broken. Your actions are just flawless, right? You're on fleet. Let's go. Who's, who's there? Nobody? Right. So you're with me when we can say, like, there's things that we do that we know break God's heart, and that means that there's a right place in the Christian life for sorrow. There's a right place in our relationship with God for lament, for knowing that we've done something that's broken his heart. And it's not just simply motivated out of fear. Don't get me wrong. God's holiness has a right place in the Christian life too. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But at the same time, there's this place where you and I, knowing that we have this Father who has done so much for us, and yet We've done this. There's a place in our life where we say, God, I have messed up. And I am sorry. So like, throughout this summer, we've been in a few different psalms and we've, we've found relationship to uh, God uh, exemplified in several of these psalms. And most of the contexts that we've looked at have been places where we're in trial where we're suffering, where we're going through a dark night of the soul, where we're, 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 in, we're deeply, in, we're, we're, we're in the deep shallow, we're, we're in the deep waters of, of, of suffering, and, and, and we're in these trials. But what about when we're on trial and found guilty? How do we relate to God then? Because there is that place in the Christian's life, there is that place in the Christian's walk when the Holy Spirit says, hey, you done this. Now, he won't slap you like that, but sometimes it feels that way. Like, how do we relate to God the morning after we binge drank too much because we were in too much pain and we found ourselves drunk? 
and we're in deep sorrow? How do we relate to God when we've, we've indulged in pornography for the umpteenth time this month? How do we relate to God when we are starting to fear sorrowful over the guilt of gossip? When we keep finding a, 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 an affection for talking ill of other people because of the position it gives us with others? How are we to relate to God when, when, when we're caught in a lie and we know we're guilty? Or when we're waking up next to somebody that we don't even know, we just met them the night before and we wanted a good time with them. How do we relate to God when we're feeling incredibly sorrowful over a fight that we had with our spouse? Or when, when, when we've blown up at our kids and we know we got too heated? How, how do we relate to God then? Because you see, the question, the big question in the Christian walk is not simply, do you sin? We know the answer is what? Do you sin? Yes. The bigger question is, what do you do after? What do we do after? What, if you examine your own life, what, what do you do after? What does it look like for you? Maybe you have this sorrow, maybe you've sensed within yourself this, this place of, of pain and lament over your brokenness and over your sin, maybe even sinful habits, but you don't know how to go to God. In fact, your actual response is more to just to keep him at a distance because you know he's, just con- he's constantly disappointed with you. At least that's what you think. You see, how do we relate to God in those circumstances? Psalm 51 is going to give us a way. It's going to give us a way to relate to God. And guys, I, I, uh, as I was praying through which psalms to, to, to go through this summer with you, this one was one of the first ones that the Lord put on my heart because this one is probably the one that I've referenced the most. In fact, this is my preaching Bible. I don't write in it. Um, But if you were to go to my devotional Bible, uh, you would find the pages of Psalm 51 stained with multiple tears. Uh, This is the one that I run to when I'm guilty. This is the one that I run to when I've messed up, when I've gone too far. And I need a way to know how to relate to God. Psalm 51 is it for me. It's the one that I quote most in prayer because I relate to it the most. So we're, we're going to be in Psalm 51, and I've, I've got some time, but goodness, we've, we've got a book. It There's 19 verses, so I'm just going to kind of walk through it, and we're going to start with the title that Wanda started with. We find that it's a psalm of David, right? King David, that guy, that man after God's own heart who composed so many of these psalms. We find out that he wrote it, Once Nathan, the prophet, went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Now, I'm not going to assume that all of us in here know that story. So I think in order for us to feel the weight of Psalm 51, we need to at least press into that and what happened there. So I am going to briefly walk through that story. If you don't know it, you can find it in 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12. And it starts with a king failing to do his kingly responsibilities by going to war with his nation. You see, it was the time when kings were supposed to go to war with their people and, and they were to fight, but, but he didn't go. Doesn't give an actual reason, but he didn't go. In fact, not only did he not go, but one evening he found himself strolling across the rooftop of the palace. Now, one of the things I want to make sure we understand is that the palace is the private place. Like the rooftop on houses and the rooftop in the palace is the private place. That's where you go for, for, for private. If you want to get changed, if you want to bathe, that's where you're supposed to go. David was up there strolling around, and it actually says he was peering over, looking at the tops of other rooftops. Guys, this is pretty much compared to, like, I don't know, it's, it's 11 o'clock at night, everyone's gone to bed, and you're scrolling the internet, thinking you're going to be all right. Or you're, you're, <laughs> you go to Golden Corral on a salad-only diet. Think you're going to make it out there alive? No, nope, you're going to see that steak, you're going to be like, oh... No, so he's up on the rooftop doing what he shouldn't do, being where he shouldn't be, seeing what he shouldn't see. And he sees a woman named Bathsheba, 
And he says that she is beautiful. And she's bathing. She's where she should be. Don't get that wrong. It's not like our houses where the bathroom is a nice confidential place. And you can lock the door and everything's concealed, right? You don't have that back then. She's where she should be for a bath. He's where he shouldn't be. You also have to think of the dynamic of you've got a king, somebody who's the ultimate authority over a whole nation, and you've got a soldier's wife. The king inquires as to who that is, and the inquirer, the one who answers, says, no, that's, that's this man's daughter. That's this man's wife. She belongs to someone. But David doesn't care. He calls for her. She comes to him, and they sleep together. Well, turns out she gets pregnant from that, and David has to work really hard to cover his tracks, to cover it up. And so what he does is he calls for her husband, whose name is what? Uriah. It's named Uriah. He's at war where David should have been. He calls for Uriah. David brings him into his palace, asks for an update, tells him to go home. Uriah has too much honor. He says, no, all my, all my fellow soldiers, they're all at war. Who am I to be able to go home, sleep in my bed, sleep with my wife? No, so he sleeps at the gate of the palace. Didn't work. David tries round two. Not only does he try to do that, but he gets him drunk. He welcomes him back in, gets him wasted, and tries to send him home again to, to sleep with his wife, to try to cover up what David had done. But nope, drunk Uriah still had enough honor. More honor than a king. And so he falls asleep at the palace gates again. Strike two. Round three, David decides he's going to send him back to battle with some instructions to have him killed. So what happens is David writes a letter to the commanding officer, gives it to Uriah to give to the commanding officer, the very note that told Joab what to do. And turns out that as they were pressing the front lines, they gave the command to withdraw some of the troops that left Uriah all on his own, and Uriah was killed. So it worked. Uriah was dead. And so Bathsheba mourned the appropriate amount of time. David waited until it was over and then welcomed her into his home, slept with her, and made her his wife. And they had a son. You see, David thought he had gotten off scot-free. I don't know why my name is used for that. He thought he had gotten away with it. So, so already, let's just pause here for a second. We've got King David, an adulterer and a murderer. You think I'd hire him on staff here? Heck no. There'd, there'd be no position for that kind of person at our church, right? At least not after long restoration process, right? No, if he's got that on his record, there's no way. I'm hiring Pastor Ethan. Right? He, he ain't an adulterer and a murderer. Goodness. We, 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 this guy's really messy. And yet look at who God can use to lead a nation. Resume. David thought he had gotten away with it, but did he? No. No, you see, there was somebody who saw it and somebody who counted it as evil, and that's the Lord In fact, one of the things that Scripture says in 2 Samuel, he says that the Lord saw what David did and considered it evil. And so he sent one of his people, one of his prophets, the prophet Nathan, to David. And David tells this story about this rich man who had tons of sheep, but when he was hosting somebody, he decided to go to a poor man and take his one sheep and slay it so that they could have a meal. And David gets outraged that this rich man would do such a thing. And he says, that man ought to die. And then what is Nathan's response? Hello, you're the man. That's you. 
And then Nathan gives him the word from the Lord. And in that word, he convicts David of adultery and murder. And all that Nathan said to David, David had one response in 2 Samuel. And he said this, I have sinned against the Lord. This is a king in need of a savior. This is a king in need of mercy. And we find here in Psalm 51 that his words were more than just, I have sinned against the Lord. We find here in Psalm 51 that he composed this psalm of lament, a psalm of lament over sin and of repentance. And one of the things that I, I mean, did you notice what you didn't find in there? You didn't find blame shifting. Well, actually, it was her fault. She shouldn't have been up there doing that, right? No, no. You didn't find rationalization. You didn't find him saying, well, God, I'm not the actual one who swung the sword for Uriah. It was, it was them. It was the, the, the enemy. They, they're the ones who killed him. You didn't find any rationalization. You didn't find any bargaining. God, you remember what I did for, for you with Goliath? Like, come on, man. This is, can't you just cover this up? No, he... He repented, and, and true repentance starts where all of that nonsense ends. One of the things that I noticed when I was studying Psalm 51 was that, that there seemed to be a disorder to it. Right When you read it, it seemed like he would jump from this spot down to this spot, and then he'd go back to this spot again, and then he'd run over here, and then he'd ask for this again. And, and one of the things that I realized is like, yeah, I, I know what that feels like in the, in, in the lament of sin. Your thoughts are all over the place because there's, you, you feel so dirty. Because you feel so out of place. You feel so gross. There's some disorder to this poem. It's not like he composed it over months and months and was able to refine it and drink some coffee as he was writing it. Ooh, yeah, no, I think I need to reword this. No, this is him pouring out his heart on paper. There's a sense of desperation here, but there's, there's two things that I really noticed in Psalm 51. Two summary prayers, like two summary concepts that kind of summarize the, the heart of what he's getting after. The first one is cleansing, and the second one is transformation. Cleansing and transformation. In fact, you could probably say that verses 1 through Nine are, are concerned with, with the cleansing of his sin and guilt. Verses 10 through 19 can be more referred to uh, as for the transformation that he needs. But let's look at verses 1 and 2. Verse 1 and 2, it says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out all my transgression." Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. This is a king on his knees before a holy God begging for mercy. Begging for mercy that would, that would blot out his transgressions. Blotting out means to erase, means to get rid of it on the record. And transgressions meaning he's broken trust with his people. He says, wash away my iniquity. The iniquity meaning the crookedness. There's something so crooked about what he did. And he needs it to be washed away. Washed as if he's dirty garment needing to be cleansed. And then we see cleansing of sin. Sin meaning he's missed the mark. He's missed the mark. So he makes a plea for this mercy to do these things, for God to be merciful and to wash away, to cleanse, to blot out all these transgressions and iniquity and sin. But what does he base his request on? What is that petition based on according to this psalm? Is it, is it based on his past accomplishments in righteousness? <laughs> you remember how I led your army, right? You remember how I'm now the king, right? No, 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 there wasn't that. Was it based on rationalizations? No. Was it based on promises of being better in the future? I'm not gonna mess up this bad next time, so be merciful to me now. No, 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 no. The only grounds that won't crumble under the plea for mercy is God's character. It's God himself 
You see, he makes this appeal for mercy, for cleansing, for the removal of all sin on God himself, on God's character. Do these things. Have mercy on me, O God, according to the fact that you have this abundance of mercy and you are loyally steadfast in love. He says, please cleanse me of all of this based on your character. Guys, that's, that's kind of at the heart of the gospel, is it not? That's the, one of the most uncomfortable truths that we have to believe, that we can't do anything to earn God's mercy or his grace. We can simply just receive it because he's willing to give it, because it's within his heart to do so. That's the gospel. We don't come dragging before him our good works to say, hey, now you see that? Does this, does this earn me some, some mercy? No, we... Base it only on God himself. And that lies at the heart of the gospel. That we're going to rely on the mercy of God based nothing on within us. Based on nothing that we can find within ourselves. And everything about him. Because that's what, that's what we find in the new covenant when we read in, in, in Titus chapter 3. It says, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God appeared, our Savior appeared. He saved us. Not because of works done in righteousness. Not because you were able to meet him halfway with your goodness, but according to his own what? Say it louder, church, because of his what? Mercy. According to his own mercy. Guys, our plea for mercy only rests on the solid ground of God's character alone because he's pleased to give it. And you, did you see how dirty David feels. You know, after a, a few days, you know how you feel after a few days of not showering? Trick question. Hopefully. I've had a few days where I didn't shower. You feel really grimy. You can feel it in your legs when you go to bed at night, can't you? It's the worst feeling ever. What do you need? A nice wash, a nice shower, hot shower. David's feeling really dirty. He's saying, I, I, I'm, I'm filthy as a garment and I need washing. Cleanse me. We need washing. We need cleansing. When we're, when we're experiencing the guilt of conviction over our sin, we, we appeal for cleansing, for washing, based on God's character alone. Guys, we, we, we might sound like this when we pray in light of this situation, God, God I, really, I really have no case to make before you. This doesn't even make sense to me. I have a lot of sin and I need cleansing. Would you be willing to cleanse me because of your goodness and not mine? That's how he starts in verses 1 and 2 and then we get to verse 3, right? Look at this, he says, For I know... My transgressions and my sin is ever before me. As this is one of the verses that I've, uh, I've highlighted and re-highlighted and circled and, and found myself talking to God this way again and again because there's a way that habits of sin can always just continue to be before you. There's a way that your sin can be the lens through which you interpret everything. Where your habit of brokenness can be how you interpret how people relate to you, how God relates to you. You can't see anything else. He says, my sin, it's always in front of me. It's all I see. It can haunt us. It's like this voice that just keeps whispering in our ears, hey, hey, do you remember what you did? Do you remember what you did? Hey, you're, you're no better than that. In fact, there is a lie that I came to believe that God has spoken truth to is that you are no more than your sin. I've been there. <laughs> the lie that you are your sin. But that's not true. I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. Look at verse 4. Against you, you only have I sinned. And done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Now, at this point, you should probably be like, all right, for real, David, 
Come on, man. What about Bathsheba? Didn't you sin against her? You've got Uriah laying dead on the battlefield because you gave the orders. You murdered him. Didn't you sin against him too? How dare you, David, say that you have only sinned against God? Careful, that's not the heart behind this. You see, David's getting at the heart of what sin really is. You see, David's understanding and the understanding that you and I ought to share is that all sinful offense starts and ends with God. Right? Guys, whatever reason David was allured to Bathsheba, whatever reason David felt like he should have Uriah put to death, no matter what motives were going on, it always started with the fact that he was breaking relationship with God. The, the allure of Bathsheba wasn't the ultimate issue. It was the fact that he had lost his desire in, in, in seeing the beauty of God. That's where it all started. He was no longer captivated by God's beauty. All our sin starts with that. And so it makes sense for him to say, I've, I pre- preeminently, God, I've sinned against you and you only. It makes sense. Especially in light of all that God had done for David, right? Think about everything that David had been brought through and able to accomplish by God's grace and mercy. Like, it's just an incredible story, and yet David realizes that, and he's saying, ultimately, God, all that you've done for me, have I really done this to you? This is my response to your kindness to me? Next, we see why. We see why. Look at verses 5 and 6. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Guys, this is uh, one of the foundational scriptures for what we would call the doctrine of original sin. This idea that, that we're not born inherently good, though the world might say that. We're actually born broken. We're born with a sinful capacity, to, 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 to a sinful inclination, right? G.K. Chesterton said that this is the easiest doctrine to prove. Just look at your kids. <laughs> right? But David here is recognizing that, that the, the capacity, the, the, the inclination, the, the propensity to even be able to go after those things, he's finding that it's not just some fluke. That it's not just some freak incident. He's saying, man, this is... This is a part of my nature. There's something within the core of who I am that brought this out. This is a core nature issue. And that's why verse 6 makes sense, right? So he said, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. So he's saying, this thing runs in my veins. It's in my heart. And that's why verse 6 makes sense here. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Guys, all sin starts with believing a lie in your heart. All sin starts there. Believing a lie in your heart. And that's why David says God delights to speak truth into the very place out of which everything in your life comes. You remember that? Remember what Jesus said? I think I have it next, right? Matthew 15. Jesus himself says, For from the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, sexual moralities, thefts, false testimonies, slander. That's not an exhaustive list. He's just naming a few. All of that's coming out of the inner recesses of our hearts. And that's why David's saying it's a part of my nature. And he says, that's why you, God, delight to teach truth to my inward being, to the secret heart, that very place within me, out of which all of my actions and desires come. Teach me truth there. Because all sin starts there. If there's a lie there, sin comes. And so in his request for being cleansed, he's realizing that it's not just skin deep, that it runs deep within his veins, in his nature, and he needs washing within. And then we get to verses 7 through 9, and we again see how dirty he feels. Look at verse 7. Purge me with hyssop. And I shall be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. 
As hyssop was that bush branch that, that the Israelites used to paint the blood of the Passover lamb on the doorpost and the lintel to escape the death that was coming. And hyssop was also the thing that the priests used in order to cleanse the leper of their sin or of their, their, their disease. And so what we see here is that David is praying, purge me with hyssop. He's saying, God, help me to escape the death that deserves this sin. Or the death that the sin deserves. And he's also saying, God, heal within me the disease. Purge me with hyssop, God. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. And then look at verse 8. He says, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hmm. As there's a way that you can feel so filthy in your sin. That all you can hear is accusations of condemnation and guilt. That's why David cries, let me hear joy and gladness again. Because all I'm hearing is, is, is mocking. All I'm hearing is re- repetition and condemnation over what I've done. There's also a way that our sin can make us feel really broken at the core of who we are. Which is why he says, let these bones that have broken rejoice. And then look at verse 9. He says, he says this, hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. In other words, God, don't keep, don't keep looking at my sin. Don't see it. It's this cry of shame and embarrassment. It's like, don't look at me. And so we see this first part where, where David is praying for cleansing. And then we get to this second part, starting in verse 10, where he's not just saying, cleanse me. He's saying, transform me. Make me new. Look at verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Remember how back in verses 5 and 6, he realized that this sin thing was running deep within his character, deep within his heart, deep within his nature? Now he's praying here, change my nature. Cleanse my heart, renew, make new again this right spirit within me. You know what he's doing when he says, God, would you create in me a clean heart? He's asking for a miracle. He's asking for only God to do what God can do. Anytime you look at this word create in the Old Testament, it's always God doing it. So he's asking God, only you can do this. And so I'm, I'm, I'm praying for a miracle here. Would you, would you create in me a clean heart? He's asking for his heart to be cleansed, his heart to be purified, his heart to that thing that controls everything and, and, and out of which everything in his life comes. He's asking for it to be made clean, to be purified. And then he asks for a right spirit to be renewed. A spirit being that energizing, that empowering, that breath of God within us, that it would be steadfast. We see this prayer for transformation in his character and nature. And then not only that, but we see, we see his, his concern about his relationship in, in, with God in the presence of his spirit. Look at verse 11. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Guys, you remember that sin is the original separator, right? We got Genesis 3 where that happens, but here we see David's concern. Don't cast me away from it. Don't, ca- don't, like, don't take your spirit from me. Why is that a concern of David's? Because it literally just happened with the guy before him. King Saul. King Saul disobeyed God and God said, you're no longer the anointed one. I'm pulling my spirit from you. So David has great concern for this, right? Great concern over whether or not God's spirit would be taken away. Guys, I can't think of a more terrifying thought. That we would lose the spirit of God. So he begs to be kept in it. And then look at what he prays for in verse 12. He prays for his own desires and his own longings. He says, restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with the willing spirit. Guys, you remember that joy that you first experienced when you were saved? That joy when you realized that your sin no longer got in the way of your relationship with God? 
that fresh joy, that's what he wants again. And we see here that he's asking for a willing spirit. Uh, a willing spirit means he wants to be eager to be in obedience to God. He, he wants to volunteer for the things that God wants him to be a part of, right? He, just, he wants it to be voluntary, not obligated. So uphold me with that willing spirit. And so he's praying for things at the core of who he is. His nature, his heart. He's praying for his desires and his longings. He's praying for the keeping of the Spirit. So that what? Look at what happens in verse 13 and 14. What happens when he's transformed in this way? Public praise and profession. Look, verse 13 and 15, or through 15. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. Guys, there's a way that our sin can shame us into silence. Trust me, I've been there. There's a way that our sin can keep us from being able to witness to other people, a way that our our sin can keep us silent before God and not even wanting to talk to Him. There's a way that our sin can make us feel incredibly unworthy to worship Him. Unworthy to talk about people and His kingdom. So David wants this transformation and this cleansing, not just for his own sake, but so that he can, he can witness to other people and bring them into the kingdom of God so that they would return to God based on the same mercy and grace that David had experienced. And not only that, but that he would also be able to worship freely before God without any hindrance. David wants cleansing and transformation so that he can worship and witness. Those are the motives within his heart as why he's repenting. Now, this psalm kind of ends in verses 16 and 17. Verses 18 and 19 were kind of, some scholars say that it was added on afterwards by copyists, but but we'll, we'll go through it. But verse 16 and 17, look at what he says. Look at how this ends. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, God, you will not despise. As you can offer thousands and thousands of sacrifices of good works and efforts to try to earn God's favor, to earn his mercy and have no lament over your, over your sin, no sorrow or grief over your brokenness. And God despises that. He'd rather have you experience the pain of a broken heart over your sin. He wants you to have a broken and contrite heart. In fact, it says that he delights in that. Do you recognize how serious that is? That that God delights in that, not in the sacrifices that he had ordained in the law, but in in a, a, a position of the heart that says, like, God, I've messed up. In other words, It's a really good thing when you feel sorrow and lament over your sin. God's pleased with that. In fact, that's what Jesus was saying when he said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Like The the kind of people that say, God, clearly I can't be enough. I'm, I'm not good enough. I've messed up in so many ways. This, this world is so broken too. I'm lo- like, what's going to happen to me, to the world? And God says he delights in that kind of heart. More than you saying, God, look at all my good works. Look at what I've done for you. God delights in the poor heart, in the broken and contrite heart. So there's this beauty while sitting in the sorrow over sin. 
it's okay to lay in the lament over your sin for a little bit. But praise God that we don't have to stay there. So, all of this to say, when you and I are in the prison of our own making of despair because of a way that we've messed up, a way that we've crossed the line, a way that we've maybe made some bad choices. Maybe we've made bad choices long ago and Satan just keeps perpetually bringing them in front of us, reminding us of them again and again and again, no matter what it is. Let me tell you that when you're on trial and you're convicted over your sin, you seek the cleansing and the transformation. You just seek those two things, the cleansing, the washing, and then the renewal. This is what I find myself praying to God again and again. Wash me clean, God. Cleanse me. Cleanse my heart. Clean it out. Renew it. Make it new. Renew a right spirit within me. That's what I find myself praying. That's what we find David praying. But you know what? All of these requests, this whole song means nothing unless God can actually provide it. You can pray through this again and again and again, over and over again. You can memorize it, you can quote it. But it means nothing unless God can actually say, yes, here it is. So the big question that you and I are left with at the end of this song is does God actually provide cleansing and does he provide transformation? Are those things made available to us? What's the answer, church? Yes and amen. Right? These things are readily available to us. These things are the very things that God has promised to us in the new covenant of his grace. Right? Look at, remember Titus 3 that we read earlier? Uh, when the goodness and kindness of our, uh, God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of the regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. What two things do you see there? The cleansing and the transformation. The gospel of God's mercy and grace where you don't have to earn it, you don't have to do enough good works in order to try to receive it. No, he freely gives cleansing and transformation. They're yours in Christ. Because of his mercy, they're made freely available to you. In other words, that means that you don't have to wait until you get better. You don't have to wait for these things until you start improving in this area of habitual sin. You don't have to wait. They're available to you right now. In other words, you're not stuck in your sin. You're not trapped in that cycle or, or, or stuck in that habit It's, it's it, that you just can't seem to break or get over. No, no, no. God has promised these things for you, believer. Christ's blood purchased them for you. And God desires to give them to you. Just receive it. Because of his mercy. So if you guys would, if you would bow your heads. And close your eyes. I, um. I wouldn't be surprised if there's some habit of brokenness or sin that, that God's Spirit has kindly, graciously brought up in your mind. Because it's the one thing that you keep lamenting over in his courtroom. It's the one thing that you find getting in the way of your joy in God. Of your joy in Christ. It's the, it's the constant bickering and fighting with your spouse. It's the raging at your kids or even your apathy towards your kids. It's your 
abuse of power at work or it's your, it's your speaking ill of a, another human being made in the image of God behind their backs. It's, it's the lying, it's the cheating, it's the manipulating, it's whatever it could be. It's the thing that seems to keep getting in the way. And you have a desire to be close to your Father in heaven, not just simply out of a fear, but out of a, a love for Him. And you're tired of breaking His heart. I believe today is a day of jubilee, a day of setting free those who have been in captive to cycles and habits of sin, who haven't been able to lift their head because they're too ashamed. They're too sorrowful and all they see before them is their own sin. That it gets in the way of seeing the cross and the empty tomb. If that's you today, I would just encourage you to run to the Father. Not doubting but with the confidence that he's willing to cleanse you, he's able to cleanse you, he's willing to transform you, and he's able to transform you. That he delights when you're on the floor of your bedroom with tears on the floor because of a way that you've messed up. And he wants to meet you there. He's not disappointed with you. That's where he wants to meet with you in the most powerful way. To cleanse and to renew. So I just want to encourage you, would you just take a second to pray before our Father? Seek cleansing, pray for cleansing, pray for transformation. Perhaps your whole life has been surrendered to Christ and you're finding a particular area that's not we need cleansing and transformation there we hope this message helps you multiply faithful followers of Jesus Christ for more information about our church please visit waynesboroughfm.com